When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, y'all, we are live. Actually, I am live. I think Josh is dealing with a couple of computer now then while we're talking. So I'm talking to y'all. It's just us right now for the time being. Texas A&M and Ole Miss winding down. Um, it looks like A&M found something at quarterback tonight. Um, at least I think they did. Um, let me know, y'all, in the comments if you hear any weirdness in the audio, if you can see me, all that. Technical issues are always something that we have. Um, we're going to talk tonight about Ohio State winning against Penn State. It was a weird game, y'all, and we're going to talk about it. Um, Michigan struggling early with uh, Michigan State, which is kind of odd, too. But uh, all in all, today was about what we expected, except for that game, that Kansas State-Oklahoma State game. Now, I, look, Josh and I were not high on either of these two teams in terms of being legitimate contenders it's one of those things where you got to do a top 10 you got to put somebody in there we weren't high on them they may be playing a little bit over uh over their heads a little bit at least in terms of ranking but in general i don't think anybody expected what they saw today or drive the discussion so far it's just a lot of arguments about michigan state in the chat but uh <clears throat> I guess for a topic to get us rolling tonight, um, I want to ask you all in the chat. I'm going to talk about it for a little bit, and we'll probably revisit this before the end of the discussion. But in Kentucky, now this game was such a blowout. Um, the matchup wasn't great for Kentucky, but we did expect maybe a little bit more offensive production because – Look, we've been on this thing for about four weeks now. Not only is Tennessee good, but their run defense is legitimately good. Uh, 66% of opponent averages coming into this Kentucky game. Um, surprised that Will Levis wasn't more successful. And maybe it was because the run game was shut down, but I think we can put the Will Levis first-round chatter to bed um, because if you can't throw on this Tennessee defense – you've got issues. I think Anthony Richardson has two career 
200-yard games. One's barely over 200 yards, and one's like 453 on the road in Knoxville. But what I want to ask y'all in the comments, and I'll ask Josh maybe when he shows up, um, is Tennessee elite or having to some favorable matchups plus Alabama? You know, that Alabama game, they won that fair and square. There's no – that's a huge win. Are they elite or are they going to get exposed next week? I think it's next week, Georgia, Tennessee. Um, I, I think that that's obviously going to come out in the numbers and we're going to do a preview and all that. But um, something about this Tennessee team, I just feel like, you know, I've had them at number four or better, I think three now for over a month now. And I don't want to upset Tennessee fans out there, but I just I feel like there's some other shoes going to drop. And and they're going to get exposed um, because the the way I see it right now is they're playing on a like untouchable level, and I think everybody's got warts this year. And I, I, so somebody says, why does it? Why is this even a question? Tennessee is elite regardless of what happens next week. I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, look, I, I think that they've earned their ranking to this point, and I think that they be possibly the best team and that's why i'm asking the question but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've played all the teams that they need to play for us to know that they can't be exposed after what we saw with ohio state today after what we've seen maybe sometimes offensively with michigan you can't tell me that there's not questions around those two teams there's obviously questions around alabama and the struggles that they've had this year alabama could end up just running away with it blowing everybody out of the water or they could lose two or three games on the stretch. That's kind of what I'm saying about Tennessee. Not necessarily that they're not a top team this year, but like I'm trying to think of, I don't want to say like the Oklahoma teams, but maybe maybe some of the, like 2017 Clemson. That was a team that I think they were number one seed coming into the playoffs and Alabama beat them with Jalen Hurts. Um, and, and so that was a situation where we didn't know what we didn't know about Clemson here, Josh, big haircut, um, had some, had some issues, but Josh, I'm asking the crowd right now, is it possible that Tennessee is as good as advertised as we saw tonight in terms of the score? Maybe they've gotten just progressively better since that pit game, or is there a potential that, Tennessee just hasn't played the team that has the right makeup in terms of matchups that could expose them. And there still might be a Tennessee that could lose two or three games this year. Well, I mean, I think the, the latter part of it's really the answer to the question in and of itself, right? The question is whether you say that they're legit, right? Are they actually that good? And then we start asking the question of, is it possible that they lose two or three games? Right. Anytime you're answer, you're asking the question, is it possible that X team could lose two games this year? Yeah, I think at that point you have to admit that that team is probably pretty legit. Uh, and I, I think that's where Tennessee is. I mean, they're they're an elite team on the offensive side of the ball for sure. The thing that was most impressive to me against Kentucky is they showed they were an elite team on the defensive side of the ball. They were attacking. Right. They were aggressive. Uh, their pass defense, which has been atrocious all year. Again, they've been 100 plus in most categories in that regard. Uh, they showed up and, and, you know, both of us, I think are of the opinion that Will Levis is not exactly a consistent quarterback. I don't think that's shocking to anybody. 
but they are somewhat capable at least. And again, Tennessee's past events have been quite bad. Even teams like that have scored. Teams like UT Martin have moved the ball on them at times. That didn't happen. I mean, if they get the kind of defensive performance they had tonight against other teams, it's going to be hard for anybody to win that kind of race with them. Honestly, what they remind me of right now was 2012 Texas A&M, which when they caught fire around the time they beat Alabama, man, you really felt like they would have beaten anyone in that like six game stretch when they were red hot. Uh, I, I was a, you know, I think there's something to be said that Kentucky did slow them down at times in the first half that weren't super crazy explosive in the first quarter. It kind of came on around the second quarter, put a lead on and then held it. But you could at times hold them in check. But man, I mean, it, it, you have to nitpick to say that they're not a top team uh, because they, you know, they're playing like a top team. They score like a top team. They've got a great run game. They've got a great pass game. And I think the biggest thing they have going for them, as much as people would talk about, you know, Hooker to Hyatt and everything going on in the offense, on the offensive and defensive line, they can be dominant at times. I mean, Hooker has forever in the pocket. The run game gets a ton of push. Kentucky is a physical football team, and they still own that line of scrimmage. And then the defensive side of the ball, that D-line has given them great run D stats all year. This year, it showed up in the – or this game, I should say, showed up in the passing game, right? that they were able to get a lot of pressure on Levis. They made him uncomfortable all night. They created a lot of those turnovers that happened. Um, you know, I think the question for Tennessee is, yeah, are they going to drop one or two games? Are they going to lose to Georgia? And if that's your conversation, are you going to lose to Georgia? Or, you know, just like LSU back in the day, are you going to lose to Alabama? You're in pretty rarefied air. You're a legitimate top five team. And that's, frankly, that's where Tennessee is right now. It, it, the way they're performing at the moment, they are at that level. Yeah, I, I think Tennessee feels a little bit like that 2014 Ohio State team who, you know, they they played Alabama at the end of the year and and won that game, but those two teams were pretty close. You know, they, it wasn't like the Wisconsin game at the end of the season. Like, they romped a lot of teams. The postseason was a little bit different, or at least the, the playoffs. Tennessee feels like that team, they just didn't get their loss that Ohio State got to Virginia Tech when they played Pitt. They won in overtime. That's kind of what it feels like to me. Um, Tennessee feels really good right now, and it's not just the clean record, but now they're playing dominant. And I do think that they have, they can be absolutely exposed in the passing game. Um, the issue is they've got an elite offense and they've got a really, really good, if not elite, run defense. And that might be enough. For them to get through Isaac Adkins says Ryan day needs to be less involved with the offense. Something just ain't right with all these struggles in the first half of games for multiple years. I, I disagree with this to an extent. I think that some of the struggles are who they're playing. Like Penn state is no joke. So struggling on the road at Penn state, when you've played nobody all year, and you've not had any threats, like any stress on the road, Beaver Stadium, even big noon kickoff, it's not a night game, 110,000 people or whatever screaming their heads off, that takes an adjustment. What I've been encouraged by seeing Ohio State play is the second half adjustments. And that, frankly, is something we haven't seen from like Alabama defensively the last couple of years is – when someone has put in some pressure on you, second half adjustments, turn it around. I think that Penn State's just a good 
defensive football team. I think oh, at towards the end of the sort of like they did against Michigan, what I thought if I had one complaint about Ohio State in the first three quarters of this game is it's almost like they looked at the statistics in some defense. Penn State has a really good pass offense and saw what Michigan did in their run game, and they were trying to emulate that. It's almost like they were trying to prove that they could be a trench warfare kind of team and run the ball at seven yards a clip and impose their will instead of doing the thing that they can do, which is throw the daggum ball. Josh, did you get that feeling too, or, or was it just a matter of them being off today? Well, it, I mean, a matter of them being off to some degree, but this is really the third time we've seen it at some level. And you can, I can see a lot of people in Stroud and chat talking about, oh no, it's just Ryan Day play calling. And I think that's a little too easy. I mean, play calling for them works great when it works and it doesn't when it doesn't. Right. I mean, that, that machine, that machine has sputtered. It sputtered for most of the game against Notre Dame. It sputtered for, a good half against Iowa. We we kept having people come back in our in the comments in that game and talk about, well, we won by a million points. You did. They didn't have a good first half offensively. I mean, they got the ball turned over over and over again, and they kept kicking field goals because they weren't really moving the ball. And it was really only late in the game that that, that blew open. Um, and it happened again. I mean, so I, I said during the Iowa game, and I think both of us had this comment, that there has to be something to that when that happens twice. And their offense – this was something that our model pointed out, even though the score, you know, did eventually, you know, pull away in Ohio state's favor. It, it didn't love Ohio state to the degree you might think in part because Ohio state has a tendency to have empty yards uh, between the twenties. When you can really run that RPO, when they can really stretch the field vertically, they can move the ball quite well. And I think you saw that today against Penn state for the most part. And the problem is when the field starts <laughs> compressing those plays start to go away and it becomes a lot more about execution. And that's when they start to stall. Um, and Penn state played smart football, which was, um, you know, try to keep everything in front of you and, you know, just make, <laughs> make Ohio state drive the length of the field. But I think the most surprising thing to me in a lot of that game was how much Penn state actually did just come up and challenge Ohio state and, and sort of dare them to, make plays. Uh, they were a lot more aggressive with Stroud and we've seen something we've seen before. Ohio state has such a talented, well-oiled machine that for the most part, they don't get a lot of pressures on Stroud. The receivers are generally open quickly. The run game's usually running well. And when Stroud is able to run that offense in rhythm, they are hard to stop. If you can actually get pressure on Stroud and you can actually make him go through his progressions, he doesn't always operate at the highest level and he's still a good quarterback in those situations but he looks a little more mortal and the offense does slow down um now that's let me be clear that is kind of a complaining about superman's kryptonite sort of comment um but what i mean by that is that there are things you can do to make ohio state have trouble and penn state managed to do that today for the most part successfully and there's definitely a huge difference in that offense when they're in rhythm versus when they're not in rhythm. Um, and people can complain about, you know, I'm looking here like you, the fact that they called bubble screens like crazy and all those things. I mean, those are plays that are designed to force the defense to play you tight. And they're, mm -hmm. it's sort of like inside runs. What those plays do is they force the corners to come up and really try to attack you at the line of scrimmage. They keep guys coming downhill. And the idea is if you keep guys coming that way, then eventually you, you bomb them over the top because 
you catch guys running the wrong direction and you get behind them. And they just didn't get that done. Uh, they didn't protect the quarterback well enough to hit those shots. Um, some plays Stroud wasn't uh, on time or accurate downfield. Um, you know, the receivers didn't always make the plays they needed to make. But for whatever the reason, they just didn't execute them. And and that's kind of the, I mean, you know, you know, that's kind of the game. So I do think it showed a little bit of mortality from Ohio State. But still at the end of the game, you saw the fact that when they get in rhythm, when things do start moving, all of a sudden they just, I mean, they go nuts. If, if you're attacking and you're being that aggressive, as soon as you miss a tackle, and we saw that from Ohio State against Penn State, right? You know, they come up on a on what was a really short pass to Parker Washington two guys crash down on it. They run into each other, fall down. And there's, he scores. Why does he score? Cause there's nobody behind him because they're trying to tackle him at five yards. Ohio state is trying to invite that and then get the explosive behind it. And when the explosive isn't coming right now, sometimes I think partly because the running game isn't always that successful. Sometimes the offense doesn't really move. So um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of my takeaway from it. There's, it's not a, it's not like it's a bad offense. I'm not really dinging it in that regard. I'm just saying that's, that's when they become mortal. Uh, and, you know, I think honestly, it's a little bit refreshing in a sense, because this is the last point I want to say before I turn it back to you. I don't think Ohio state is a bad offense at all. I mean, they're, they're a top level offense. They operate at a very high level. Their potential is insane. I think a large part of this is just the fact that defenses have figured out ways to disrupt an offense. And they have figured out ways to make you execute at a high level in order to score at a high level. And if you're not on and you're not executing, it's really clear every offense in the country, maybe save Tennessee. And I think even Kentucky, different spurts, we've seen it with them. Everybody in the country can be stopped. Everybody in the country can struggle if you're not executing 100%. The days of four years ago where if you had the fastest guys in the field, you were just going to score 40 no matter what. I think those days are kind of gone. And scoring is still higher. Teams can still be explosive. But at least you've got to execute. At least you've got to be in in rhythm. Frankly, I think that makes for a more exciting sport. Um, and I don't think it's a, anything that went wrong for Ohio State was really a bad thing. I think to a large degree, it's just the fact that Penn State was a little underrated defensively. And I think people have kind of forgotten the reality of what defense is supposed to be in college football, which is that stuff is not supposed to come easy and you're not supposed to score on every drive. Stephen Light says another year we can't pull it off against Ohio State. Congrats to them. Only plus is that this is the last year we put Clifford at quarterback. Thank the Lord. I'm Josh. I'm a little surprised. Like I, I think coaches have a tough position that they're put in a lot when you have a guy that's been there for a really long time, and he's the incumbent. Benching that guy is a gut wrenching, awfully hard thing to do. You know, it took Nick Saban the entirety of 2017 until they were about to lose a national championship to put Tua in the game when Jalen Hurts wasn't getting it done. And Jalen Hurts has turned out to be a good quarterback, but 2017 Jalen Hurts wasn't really in the same stratosphere as 2017 Tua, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of those examples because coaches tend to ride with that guy out of respect or – just it's too painful to sit a guy who should be a GTA right now. Um, but this one is a situation where honestly, it's not actual nepotism because you know Sean Clifford isn't but Iowa a lot, where you have this incompetence, but you also have this responsibility. 
you have a responsibility to a Penn State program and all of these fans and all of this money to put the best possible product on the field. And look, the Penn State had some drives today. One was that busted tackle that went to to Parker Washington, and one was like a cup. A couple of them just they they manufactured the points that they did. But there was an entire third quarter where Penn State didn't score, and they held Ohio State scoreless. This is another situation, an incompetent quarterback, and survives because even though Ohio State's offense can't get going, the other offense can't either. And he had four turnovers today, Josh. Four turnovers, and I'm trying to understand, like, I didn't see a quarterback today that was really ever in much danger of or threat of beating Ohio State. I, I didn't feel that way. Um, I don't think you can bench him at some point in this game because of how it went, but we're six years into this guy's tenure. It's clear if you want to put the best product on the field, you've got to at least try something else at quarterback, don't you? Yeah, uh, I think long term that's the answer, but I think short term it's often a little too easy to just say play the backup quarterback and everything will be better. Um, you know, Aller in particular, I, I don't know if we really know if he knows enough of the playbook to play much. Uh, when he has played, I haven't felt like he was necessarily that much more effective really than Clifford. He has been at spurts, but not really long term. Um, I think their problem is that they just don't have a better option. And to some degree, I think that's also the fault of Franklin to not realize where they are, not to consider or not to be able to at least draw in a better transfer quarterback or not to get a high level quarterback sooner to replace Clifford. I, they there there's this problem you end up with when you got a guy that last five or six years, that's been the starting guy for that long. You, you just kind of can't recruit anyone behind him because nobody wants to come in and sit on the bench these days for two years. Uh, but you also don't really have the ability to run a better option. And it's been obvious that he's been at his ceiling for a few years. I mean, look, when he got to play Sandlot football and he's running around and making throws downfield, he was pretty successful. I mean, he made some big plays in that game. Uh, and a lot of it was due to his ability to improvise. But when he tries to sit in the pocket and go through progressions, man, he just looks bad. And, and it's there are a couple layers to that onion. The first being it feels like they should do a better job of embracing what he's good at. It reminds me a little bit of last year when Brian Harson took over at Auburn and they had Bo Nix. They yep. tried to make Bo Nix a pocket passer and he was terrible. I mean, they almost lost to Georgia state. They ended up benching him for TJ Finley. Who's really bad and definitely not as good a player as Bo Nix. It's pretty obvious this year. Um, but it's because in that, in that scheme, trying to be a traditional pocket passer, he was just bad. And then at some point they realize, look, this isn't what he is and we can't make him that. So let's just let him run around and throw the football. And that's when they, you know, turn it around and shockingly beat Ole Miss, I think it was. Um, yeah, it, it, that's what you have in Clifford. You have to sort of acknowledge it. it. And at times I feel like they don't. And when the big problem with Penn State is when they get in crunch time and I almost feel like when they get in crunch time, Clifford feels like, OK, I got to be a quarterback now. Uh, and then everything just goes to crap because he sits in the pocket and he tries to do his reads and he tries to be a pocket passer and he's just frankly bad at it. Uh, and, and a lot of bad things happen, but I, I just don't think, I don't think they have a better option. And that's where it kind of gets along to the fact that, uh, um, you know, a, as a football team, 
you're usually defined by the decisions you made two years ago, not the decisions you made this year. And everybody wanting to change now, you're way too late. Uh, if, if this stuff needed to happen, there needed to be gears in motion a long time ago. Uh, you kind of just have to ride the ride the train that you're on at this point. Yeah, I, I will give a little pushback on the Drew Aller. How much does he know of the playbook? Because they only run like four plays. <laughs> I mean, it's it's some version of a wide receiver screen or a dump off somewhere. Um, I know somebody in the chat said, but you got to give Ohio State credit for those four turnovers. You do to an extent. Um and I think it's a little bit of a mixture. Like I give Ohio State credit for, you know, a tip pass turnover, a jump in front of a running back interception. Those they they played a part in that. But the first two interceptions were because he absolutely locked on and stared a receiver down. The fourth interception was because he absolutely locked on, held up a sign and said, This is where I'm throwing the ball. The third turnover was um the i think they were they had like a 15 yard cushion on all the wide receivers and instead of taking an eight yard dump off he was trying to get a hero shot and he didn't have the protection for it and that's why he fumbled the ball all that ohio state absolutely paid played a part but there's a reason why they're putting up four five six turnovers against teams with terrible quarterbacks and they're not with others because you don't normally create four or five six turnovers in a game yeah. it's not as of how he played i want you to touch on this one and then we maybe need to move on from this game because we're not doing two and a half hour shows anymore um josh mike farino says day was extremely stubborn today middle of the field was open all day but they kept throwing wide receiver screens for one yard average fourth quarter was the only one they attacked consistently why don't you touch on that um yeah I, i'm trying to i'm trying to process it i mean the I think the reality when you see teams doing things like wide receiver screens is they're just trying to get offense going. It's a way to get the ball to your wide receivers and let them try to get yardage. And Ohio State has high-level talent at the wide receiver position. Um, the middle of the field was open, especially late, but it, it was sort of open because of the way Penn State was dropping guys into coverage. And I think Ohio State, the thing that you usually don't see in those situations is what is their, what are they actually trying to do when it, and it's not working. The middle of the field was wide open when it worked. <laughs> uh, and I think there were times where they started leaving it open and they didn't quite adjust to it fast enough. But I, I, I really got the feeling that Ohio State was trying to take some shots. They were trying to take uh, take opportunities for explosives. I think Stroud was looking for those opportunities and they weren't coming. And I think from a coaching staff perspective and a quarterback perspective, both, they just weren't really used to being challenged in that way. They weren't used to having those availabilities not open. And you saw the offense get sort of janky because, well, the first read's not there, and now what do we do? Um, and at some point, they kind of made some adjustments, and they started to realize, hey, that stuff's not there. Let's start attacking the middle of the field. Let's try to take what's available to us. It's interesting to me because this is the same way that teams have attacked Alabama in recent years, uh, really under Bryce Young. And I think, frankly, I think it's because Bryce Young's short compared to Stroud. That's a big reason why. Shroud might get drafted higher because height matters, and there's a reason for that. Um, but, you know, teams are just going to keep trying to take away that deep ball, and it's really easy to get frustrated. And a quarterback that's expecting it to be open sometimes doesn't always bring it down. And then the offensive coordinator feels like, well, we got to keep attacking, and it's going to pop someday, and it just doesn't. 
Uh, and again, I think the wide receiver screens were trying to get people to come down so that they could run the offense they want to run. And this also gets into the fact that, you know, just because something is open or available or an, or an adjustment should be made doesn't mean your offense is designed to do it. I mean, Ohio State's offense is not a levels-based um, – I don't think it's really a levels-based attack. They're not really based off going through progressions and trying to attack the middle of the field on a consistent basis. Yeah, they do hit those plays sometimes, but it's not the primary driver of that offense. And it's hard to just switch that gear over. You know, your playbook isn't designed for it. You're not used to it from a rhythm perspective. Your chart isn't. And this gets back to something, Daniel, you said at the very beginning, or at least when I hopped on, that it felt like they came into that game thinking it was going to be easier than it was. And it took them a long time to really realize that it wasn't or why it wasn't working and, and to make the adjustment to change. And I will make one more point before we switch over, which is, you know, at the end of the day, these games are defined by players and players making plays. Uh, Ohio State continues to, I think, suffer from the fact that, uh, you know, Smith and Jigba is not available. We've been saying, and I will say mostly Daniel, I, I wasn't 100% on board, but you always made the point that you thought Har Harrison Jr. was the best wide receiver in college football. I think you're right. Um, now, I felt like Smith and Jigma was still better. I don't know that I've necessarily been proven wrong because he's been banged up. It may well be that he's better than Harrison. It's just Harrison's that good. Uh, they could both be that good. Uh, but what I thought was most interesting from this game, which I haven't really seen too many people talk about, you can look at all the stats, all the run stats and everything. This game was dominated by two players. It was dominated by Harrison Jr. and Parker Washington. 185 yards for Harrison Jr. on 10 reception, 179 on 11 receptions for Parker Washington. Um, and it feels like the game of football has turned more and more into a game that is defined by what your receivers can achieve. And in this game, Harrison was, I, th I think is a better player than Parker Washington, but I thought it was interesting that Washington was as successful as he was. Um, but, you know, Penn state outgained Ohio state by 30 yards. They both ran for under four yards of carry 3.8 to 3.4. Uh, it was really defined, I think more by Harrison's consistency, allowing Ohio state to move the sticks and by the fact that Clifford is just a much more error-prone quarterback than Stroud, and those three turnovers were really killer and blew the game open. But that's it's almost as simple as it was, and I'm not sure I'm not sure what to quite take away from this. Um, I will also say JTT getting a lot of love in the comments. He had a phenomenal game. Um, I think he had a phenomenal game because he's a great player, and I think it was also had a lot to do with the fact that the backup right tackle for Penn State was a tire fire in this game. I mean the the strip sack that he had. The, the right tackles turned around backwards and blocking him with his back. And when that happens, you're not just, you're not just beating the guy that that's a, that's a, you're not using the right technique. I don't think there's any technique where you're supposed to block with your butt. Uh, he, he just got mauled. Um, and that I think, you know, for all the talk and the battle of Harrison and Washington, I'm going to take one step back and I'll end with that. The thing that decided this game, I think was JTT being very good, but it was, I think an equal measure the right side of that Penn State offensive line was so bad that it created a lot of huge negative plays and kind of broke their offense, and that really shifted the game. Not to say Ohio State wouldn't have won anyway, but it's what caused Ohio State to be able to run away with it, in my opinion. Uh, Benjamin F Benjamin V with the Super Chat says he can't wait to watch tomorrow. Um, and Benjamin V, I believe, is a Michigan fan. Um, Michigan took care of business today. I, here's where I'm struggling with Michigan a little bit. It's the same place I was at last year in that Michigan is not going to win a national championship 
with a seven yard per attempt quarterback. And I don't care what anybody says in terms of like, you can look at how bad they're beating, you know, they're beating Michigan state. I, I like, I don't take anything negative. I'm not dropping them. You know, they struggle in the first half, whatever, but there's a difference between where you're ranked and winning a national championship. And last year they had a lot of like, this like explosive offense where they'd get two or three touchdowns a game on like a flea flicker or um, a fourth and one that they go for it. They bust through the line and get them. They do it enough that it's part of their offense that I'm not calling it a fluke. Like I think it's 2016 Alabama who like broke some kind of record for non-offensive touchdowns. At some point that's baked into who you are as an offense or, or your scoring. So I'm not discounting it from that standpoint, but a seven yard per attempt quarterback is not winning a national championship. It might be enough to beat Ohio state again. If you have some advantages in the trenches, some advantages defensively, which I think there might be some there, but at what point, Josh, do we see an offense that's a little more dynamic and is not just, hey, we're going to score 32 points every single game. You're going to score 13, and we're going to look good in our in our – like if you just look at the score at the end of the game, we're going to look good. But how we got there was we had to run for 400 yards. Like that's the easiest thing to stop. If you're an elite defense, that is the easiest thing to stop in college football – or professional football. That's why professional football is a passing game now. Josh, are you a little bit concerned of what you're seeing at quarterback or in the passing game in general at Michigan? If you're thinking of them not as a number five team in the country, but as a team that would win a playoff game. You have to be. You have to be. And the problem I saw in this game against Michigan State, frankly, was the inconsistency was inherent to who J.J. McCarthy was. He's just missing throws. Even when they completed throws, they were generally high or off target. He's not an accurate quarterback. And there are parts where he looks young in terms of his ability to go through progressions and make decisions. He is a very good athlete. He can run the ball well, though he's not big enough to take a lot of punishment. So you end up having to use him as a scrambler. You can't use him as a designed run guy. That's a big difference between KJ Jefferson and a lot of other players. And KJ Jefferson, interesting to me in that Arkansas-Auburn game, there's maybe there might not be two players that are more important to their teams and KJ Jefferson is for Arkansas and tank Bigsby is for Auburn. And that's because of their versatility in the run game and in the past game and everything they do. And you can run an offense through them with McCarthy. He does, you know, does do a good job of moving the pocket and extending plays. And he has the ability to make throws, but he doesn't make them on a consistent basis. And he's not a big enough, strong enough, athletic enough guy for them to run him on design QB power kind of runs like KJ Jefferson will run over a dude. Um, even Hendon and hooker can hit a guy and carry him. Uh, and I think McCarthy's kind of a step back from them from a power perspective. I know athletically he can, he can do, do really good things for you in the run game, but they just can't run him that much. Uh, but my problem is in the passing game, even when guys are open, when the reads there, he doesn't execute it very often. And I've seen this now game in game out. Um, to some degree, I think the receiving core is a bit of a problem. Ronnie Bell is not – it does not look like the guy I was hoping he would be. I don't I don't think he's come back to be quite the same player he was pre-injury, which really makes me sad. 
Uh, I know there's one play he caught in stride and then he got run down a couple strides later from behind. That's not the Ronnie Bell from a few years ago. Uh, and, and that limits them to a large degree in what they're trying to do, but still, you know, that there's just a limiter in that offense with the way they're run with the consistency they get from the quarterback position, what McCarthy can and can't do. And I think there's a reason why they're a, we're going to get explosive runs and win, or we're, we're not, and we're going to be in a tight game. And it's because that's a good offensive line. It's a pretty good team overall. They're physical. The defense is really good. Every piece of that is an elite team, except the explosiveness in the passing game and consistency in the passing game. It's just not there. Uh, and as you said, football is a passing sport at this point. And if that component's not there, it, it just, you know, that's a restrictor plate going around the Talladega 500. Uh, and yeah, it, it's really concerning for them because I think their ceiling, when you talk playoff discussion, if they had to play Tennessee tomorrow, the way they're playing, if they, and I, I'm right now, frankly, I'm concerned with them with Ohio State. They can't win a real shootout. I don't think the offense is consistent enough to do it against a good defense. Uh, and what you just saw from Tennessee is the example of, yeah, you can be an elite on offense and you can you can start clicking defensively. We saw it 2019 LSU. It, it tends to happen with national title teams. Um, Michigan's not there. No, and, and look, even Tennessee, like that's concerning for me because – Tennessee has an elite run defense. Like the way you beat Tennessee, and this is what you're going to come across over the course of a season, the way you beat Tennessee is, is having a quarterback that can throw for 10 yards in attempt, that can put up 400 yards if he needs to, and can exploit the problems that they have. Running the ball up the middle and hoping that, that Corum breaks the 60-yarder three times a game, th that's not how... That's not how how it goes. Um, Brett asked, how is Michigan's offense worse than last year when they road graded Ohio State? Ohio State's defense was a travesty last year. I don't know that, like, comparing year to year is, is tough in general. Like, I don't love doing that. But Ohio State lost last year because they lost in the trenches and because schematically they were a giant mess on defense they've fixed a lot of those things and even still like the point is playoff game and we saw exactly what happened last year when they played georgia that was not a contest that was not a competitive football game because all of the tricks and gadgets that kind of that you can do to get 350 yards rushing and beat in indiana it doesn't work against elite teams and elite defenses Ohio State's defense wasn't good last year. So if if we're saying that Michigan's D offense isn't any worse than last year, okay, you might beat Ohio State. Maybe Ohio State is, is, is fool's gold again this year. I don't think they are, but maybe they are. Okay. Um, you're still not beating Georgia. You're not beating Tennessee. You're not beating if Alabama makes it. You're not beating them. So that's where I was hoping in this offseason we'd see a little bit of change. It is a bye week for LSU, but we got a super chat from Eric, and we didn't talk about LSU last week, even though we had it in the title. So, Josh, we're going to tackle this super chat. I think it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also I'm assuming um, given the American Florida Lee that is an LSU fan – Talk LSU, look at the stats. Nobody can score on our defense. And our offense and QB wide receiver now all best in the country after LSU national championship contention go LSU. So it has improved considerably, Josh. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I do think their defense is actually like, there is a point here. Like Auburn dominated them statistically, but couldn't score any points. Um, but Josh, I, our offense QB wide receiver now all best in the country. I think some of the offensive production is because they're getting more comfortable in this in this scheme. But also some of this offensive production might be a little bit because of the teams they played. Yeah, it's it, it's tough to distinguish right now, right? So they the last few games they played Auburn, Tennessee, Florida, and Ole Miss. And Auburn, they were three point six yards per play, which is incredibly poor. And anything below four yards per play is really anemic in a football game. Uh, Tennessee, 4.86 yards per play, which is pretty terrible. It wasn't just that Tennessee bombed on them. They did not move the ball on Tennessee either. Uh, then Florida, they came around and did 7.5 yards per play. And then last uh, last week against Ole Miss, they were 6.6 yards per play. Uh, the Ole Miss game is kind of interesting because it was 45-20. Um, they kind of ran away with that one, but it was the per play differential, 5.6 to uh, – uh, to 6.6, what really wasn't that significant. And it was the same way with Florida. It was 6.7 yards per play um, defensively to about 7.5 they gained. Uh, that was a closer game, 45-35, uh, but still not that close. The The problem with all this is when you look at them in terms of where their yardage is coming from, I think, um, they've been able – I think they've been balanced enough to their credit that they've been able to exploit with the other team – can and can't do so. Florida, they ran, they threw the ball for 11 yards per attempt, threw for 350 yards. Uh, they didn't, and then you know, Ole Miss still threw it pretty well, about 250 yards passing. Tennessee, they had about 300 yards passing. But the uh, the game against Ole Miss, they win. They really ran the ball to success, about 250 yards on the ground. Uh, they had almost 200 yards in Florida too, but not at the same clip. I think the problem that teams run into when they're dealing with LSU is that LSU's offense can attack you through the ground and through the air. Uh, Daniels is getting a lot more comfortable with his personnel. It's a problem with a transfer quarterback. Hendon Hooker didn't look great for half the year last year either, which we've all kind of forgotten. Uh, same deal with Joe Burrow when he came in at LSU. Uh, it's, it seems pretty normal. Transfer quarterbacks take a while to settle in. Uh, but now that he's settled in, they've got a lot of balance and they do have weapons. They've got a lot of depth at receiver. They've got a lot of depth and running back. If you've got a weakness, LSU probably has the player to exploit it on offense. I don't know that their passing game is that crisp. Like Daniel still is a little weird with his reads. He's still not super consistent. I don't know that their offensive line is great. Like if they were in a situation where, um, well, we kind of saw that, right, in the Tennessee game, that the whole left side of the offensive line gets hurt, and they really had to throw the football because they couldn't run it. They they had no answer. Like, they just crumpled. Like, if they've got to do one thing and one thing only, and they're one-dimensional, I'm not sure how well that's going to translate. But as long as they can keep that balance, as long as you've got a flaw, and everybody they've played has had a flaw, uh, they can do pretty well. And defensively, I think they've, they've shored up. I think they're playing better defense um, in general, but – I will push back there a little bit. I mean, it's only Tennessee was only three games ago, right? Uh, Ole Miss in the last game, they still gave up over 400 yards and give about 400 yards to Florida. The biggest thing with the Ole Miss game is that Ole Miss just didn't finish drives, which we saw even in that A&M game um, that just wrapped up, right? They had trouble finishing drives. It seems to be a little bit who they are. I think LSU is a, is a good team. I think they're a ranked top 25 quality team, maybe, maybe a top 15 quality team. Um, but there's a lot of positives and negatives there. So long answer for a super chat, but we haven't talked about them for a while. So I felt like it was earned. 
Yeah, and we will be obviously previewing that game coming up. There's a reason that in spite of all of Alabama's troubles on the road this year, I think they're a 15-point favorite. Um, I think LSU has come a long way. I think that we're going to find out Saturday if either Alabama is going to be in the playoffs or Alabama is maybe who they've shown to be some a lot this year in terms of a team that could possibly have a couple of losses. Um, DeVar Williams said, good to see you guys. Obligatory go blue. I think we can beat Ohio State again, but further than that, I agree with y'all. JJ has the ability to make throws. He has the strength. He has the precision. He just needs more snaps. I think part of that's true, too. Like, he hasn't – we talk about him like he's a guy that's a third year in the scheme, um, but he's not. And he's got a new – kind of weird co-offensive coordinator thing going on this year um, and is probably scarred from having Gaddis as his OC um, last year, which I mean, sick. you've got to, you've got to take a victory lap there. Cause I don't think, sick I don't think there's way. any, I don't think there's anyone in the, anyone on the media sphere that was as critical as on Gaddis as you have been for the last like three years. Yeah, and I don't think you were wrong. <laughs> no, I think like we see now, like with uh, the and Lawrence Robinson, Josh, give, can you give me a Gaddis rant? Now I'm I'm punting that to Daniel. This yeah. is his lap to take. <laughs> so the thing that we said with Gaddis from the beginning um, was one. I think there's some maturity issues there based on how he left Alabama and based on how he left Michigan. Um, but my initial problem with Gaddis was. I took the hire of Gaddis by Harbaugh as a signal that Harbaugh wanted to keep his hand in the cookie jar. And he he's like, okay, I'm going to hire an OC. I'm not going to call plays. Wink, wink. I'm going to hire a guy who has never called play his, plays in his life and was a wide receiver coach to come coach at Michigan. Like, that was my issue. My issue was more with Harbaugh than Gaddis there. If I'm Gaddis, of course I'm taking that job. Of course, everybody that's a position coach in and is young in college football thinks that they can be a coordinator. You don't cut your teeth as a coordinator at the highest level. And he was ruined, in my opinion, in the same way as people ruin freshmen or rookie quarterbacks, in that if you don't get to ease your way into it where you have, you know, like where you don't have huge expectations and you aren't playing, you know, big boy football as a play caller and you don't learn the things that work in certain situations and you don't organically grow that, then you never get it because you're thrown into the fire in a weird way. I thought Cristobal hiring him in Miami was the dumbest move ever. Anybody that watched that Michigan offense last year saw that they had talented players and a good offensive line, but the scheme was booty. It was it sucked. The play calling had no feel two years in a row. It got a little better that last year, but you had a theory that Gaddis wasn't even calling plays by the end of the season. So a lot of people saw this hire as Cristobal stealing him away from Michigan. When in reality, if anybody had paid attention to football the last few years, you don't come, you don't leave a playoff team that's not named you know, no offense, Cincinnati or Washington, a brand like Michigan, you don't leave them to go to what has been a crappy program for 15 years now in Miami, unless you are asked to leave. So the excitement for him coming into this season in Miami, I did not understand Josh. And I think that Cristobal has got to make a 
pretty obvious decision and get a real offensive coordinator down there because Miami, they can buy a handful of five-star players here or there, but they're in trouble with their current staff and, and personnel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they are, uh, as somebody said it, it, and it's true, right? Like we, we were there with everybody else that wasn't really expecting a ton out of Herbert and when guys go to the pros and they're really successful, I make this point all the time. If guys get drafted higher than you expect based on college production, that's not really a good reflection on your team or your coaching staff. Uh, If they think you have a ton of high level talent and your team wasn't that successful, they're also sort of saying, yeah, you didn't really use these guys. Right. Right. I mean, that's what they're saying. Like you've got, they're saying when they draft Herbert in the middle of the first round, he did not really play like a first-round quarterback that last year in terms of production by any means. Um, they're saying, yeah, you you didn't really know how to use this guy. We think maybe you were just wrong. And it turns out that he was even a lot better than they thought, right? Uh, and Josh, now, is Oregon better this year or last year? This year right. with without him or with Chris Ball last year? I mean, they seem to, as the year's gone on, with Bo Nix at quarterback, they seem to have gotten substantially better. Um yeah, it's none of this is a good reflection on Crystal Ball as a coach. Um, I I had a friend text me and I, had, I turned it into a tweet because I just thought it was so funny. It's like you know Miami is an NFT, like as a football team that they're an NFT. It, it's just sort of a made up hologram sticker that we're that's throwing a lot of money around, and we're supposed to be told that it's this great thing and that it could boom into something bigger. Um, but it's not there. It, it's fool's gold. It doesn't seem real. I think if they keep acquiring talent like they're they're acquiring, they they're going to have to be pretty good. Like it's almost inevitable. There's no way you can be in the ACC and have a ton of five star talent and not be better than other teams, um, just because the the ACC is not that talented to where you can't differentiate yourself. But man, um, yeah. And and given what they had in the quarterback position, the fact that Van Dyke's a pretty good player and they seem to have ruined him. I, I don't know. I, I think they're going to make changes. I can't think I, – I'd be surprised, honestly, if Gaddis is retained for a second year. And maybe, the, you know, if Crystal Ball can go back to being uh, more more of a hype man and he can get some offensive and defensive coordinators to just kind of run the show, that ship can turn pretty quickly because, I mean, that's honestly – that's what happened at LSU for years, right? They had great coordinators. Uh, I truly believe that Les Miles was kind of kind of a lunatic, frankly. Um, but he had a phenomenal defensive coordinator in Aranda that gave him a ton of consistency. And Orgeron was who he was. He was an absolute hype man. But when he had good coordinators, they could be really good. Uh, and I think that's what you're going to get from Miami and Crystal Ball. And unfortunately for them, Gaddis is absolutely not a high-level coordinator that knows not only not only play calling right, but just knowing how to run practice and r- set up a scheme and all that kind of stuff. The organizational stuff that is 60% of what makes a team good. He's just way, way behind. Um, let me, let me touch on a super chat before we move on. Um, just Javari Williams talked about, uh, again with JJ McCarthy, best case is there's a little left in the tank as far as play call and pass game, but there's a reason you see near, near zero deep balls called. He lacks touch and he's not seeing the whole field. And he said, again, good job on Gaddis. Uh, that's sort of your segue, but yeah, I mean, to wrap that up with, with McCarthy, I think he can get there with his mechanics downfield. I know he leads the country in completion percentage. So people say I'm crazy to say that he's kind of inconsistent, 
but they they call that game like I think Williams is 100% right. They don't call a lot of deep balls. They call that game knowing what he can and can't do. And Michigan is Michigan is so good as a football team otherwise, they can afford to do that. They can afford to let him be the highest completion percentage quarterback in football by just letting him do what he does well over and over again. But there's a limit to how well how far you can go with that approach. And uh yeah, I think you know week by week we're going to kind of see that show up. And I'll note, I don't think he's going to be the highest completion percentage quarterback next week. I think the 15 to 25 game, um, I'm not sure how tight it is that he may fall, but, um, you know, that he had a pretty average game for a starting quarterback of a good football team this week. So I don't think he's going to hold that line. Josh, Uncle Rico asked, um, and maybe he was trying to segue us into our top tens. So that's your cue to get ready and get your top 10 going. Um, thoughts on Clemson's marquee wins being killed by Notre Dame and Louisville today. They aren't one of the four best teams. Um, Uncle Rico, you're right. And Josh, are you ready for me to do my top 10? Um, I got one team to figure out. So yeah, go with your top 10 and I'll, uh, it's funny I'll have mine I've got, done. I've got two teams to figure out um, because this top 10, I, I honestly want to stop at eight. It's, it's awful. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, right yeah. Now. Got guys in the chat. So this is your challenge as we're going right now. And you get, you're, I think people have gotten a little nicer to each other that there's, you know, game days <laughs> here going back and forth, but I'm telling you right now in the chat, do a top 10. And I mean, 10. yeah. Like yes. try to figure out eight, nine, ten. It ain't and this fun. Get cut up. This is gonna get cut up into a top ten, and we give y'all homework all the time. Y'all are gonna call us crazy. You're off the jump. You're gonna call me crazy. Um, give me your top ten and tell me why we don't know what we're talking about. Because I'll tell you, we don't. Nobody is looking at the teams in the college football right now and says, "Oh, I can give you ten teams." The problem I have right now, Josh, is we're getting into this like resume versus quality range of not knowing what to do. And that's really messing with me. Um, and, and one of my number nine is what's going to make people laugh at me, but I'm going to do it anyway. All right. Top 10. Number one, Josh, I've got Tennessee. I, I, have Tennessee right now because they have the best one in the country and they've been absolutely dominant outside of that pit, that pit game. And Ohio state fans are going to say, well, wait, you know, we've been dominant. We dominated Penn state today. um, And that one's not good, but we've already talked about 2014 Ohio state. And I think that Tennessee is in that realm in that 2014 Ohio state, was so much better in week nine than they were in week one. And I think that Tennessee right now, in addition to having the best win in the country, is also absolutely dominant. And I think that they've earned it. And I am fully admitting that they might lose to Georgia Saturday. But this week, right now, I've got Tennessee number one, and it's a combination of ranking and earning. Tennessee has had a tougher schedule than Ohio State. And I don't think Kentucky's great. I don't want Big Ten fans get at me. I don't think Kentucky's great at all. I don't think there's just like I've been given Penn State credit all year for beating the brakes off of Auburn. Auburn's a bad team, but beating them that bad is impressive. 
Um, I do want to see Tennessee beat somebody away from home. Um, that's of, of note. Number two is Ohio State. I'm not really like I, I'm not really punishing them for today at all. Um, I still think that they're the best team in the Big Ten. Um, I I was a little concerned for two and a half quarters, but they also handle their business. I mean, that's a we. I, I said that was going to be a ten point game. I think, and I said that I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't look poorly on them if they won that clip by one point um, because it's a tough place to play. And I think Penn State is better than people are giving them credit. And I think in a loss until the last kind of six minutes of that game, even in a loss, I might have Penn State in my top 10. I think they'll be a little deflated at this point to say they're number 10 uh, in the top 10. Number three is Georgia. They were dominant today as well. I think Anthony Richardson getting hurt early had a little bit of impact on what that Florida offense could do. I said Florida finds a way to get 20 points. They did that. But Stetson Bennett getting it done, man. Uh, these This this offense getting it done. We'll see uh, when they play Tennessee uh, if they can keep up. Alabama, number four, ahead of Michigan, number five. Um, if Alabama played Michigan today, I think that Alabama would win. I don't think that Michigan would be undefeated with Alabama's schedule because I don't think Michigan could beat Tennessee on the road at Tennessee. We talked about that earlier, and I think it's because there are some teams in this top five, top ten that Michigan could beat, but Tennessee has a very, very, very good run defense um, and obviously a great offense. I think they would stress Michigan in the same way they stressed Alabama. Um, number six, I have Oregon. Oregon has been dominant, and I really struggle with Oregon in that um, I can't forget that first game of the year. I just can't. But I also think that they're a different team at this point in the season. They did have to do everything they could to beat Washington State. Let's not forget that. Like They were trailing that entire game until the very end um, but also say everybody has warts this year, including number seven, Clemson, which gets us to Uncle Rico's Super Chat. We've got more information with Clemson. That's the thing that I want people to really understand with, with them in that last week that we told everybody, pump the brakes on Syracuse as a ranked win. Pump the brakes is on that being a big win. Syracuse isn't a good football team. They got beat soundly today by a mediocre Notre Dame team. Wake Forest had six turnovers in one quarter, which I think is a record, um, lost to a bad football team. Um, so these wins that Clemson's hanging their hat on to be in the top four, top five, Wake Forest and Syracuse, don't look great. And then who else have they beat? NC State sucks this year. And even, even when they had uh, Leary. I've got TCU at number eight. I've bumped them down one spot. That defense concerns me. I think if we're talking about them being ranked where they in the top 10 because they have a clean record, I will agree. But that defense is going to get them in trouble at some point in the year. But I do love what they've done offensively. Here's where I make everybody mad, Josh, if I haven't already. Number nine, I've got LSU. Um, kind of back to the point we were talking about earlier where they've gotten better throughout the year. Um, I've got LSU at number nine, and, and this is less about resume and more about would I want to play LSU tomorrow? Gun to my head, do I think LSU might beat Clemson? Maybe. 
I think they might. Um, do I think they might beat the team that I have number 10 in USC? I think they would. Number 10 USC, I'm struggling putting them in the top 10 at all. They have a clean record, but with a loss. They lost last week to Utah. They have a clean-ish record, but they barely beat Oregon State. They barely beat Arizona. And my question is, if USC was playing in the Big 12 or the Big 10, would they still be 6-1? and one? Or are we giving them credit, too much credit, for being for having a schedule that is, that is just not good? Um, and I've got them in there because who else do, do I put Penn State in there with a loss today? Do I put UCLA in there after getting worked last week? It's so hard, guys. Um, it's really hard. Um, I've got 10 USC there, but I don't, and I don't think that I think that there's a lot of teams 20, 11 to 30 that would beat USC. But for now, I got to give that clean record a little bit of credit. Josh, give me your top 10. Let's see how you do. Yeah, uh, it's tough. Uh, and it's tough at the top and it's tough at the bottom. Uh, my number one team remains Ohio State. I still think they're the most complete team. Defensively, they're very good. Offensively, they continue to scare me a little bit at times, but when they're in rhythm and they're working, they're great. It, it's really obvious now that playing on the road matters again for some reason in college football. Uh, that was a tough environment. Uh, and they did sort of sleepwalk offensively for the second time this year for the majority of a game. But when they came on, they came on. And their weapons are better than anyone else's. But again, the defensive side of the ball was what really stood out. And if they have that kind of balance, I don't know that anyone else really matches it. In terms of explosive potential on offense and good defense, nobody else is really there. Um, my number two team is Tennessee. Uh, I, I just... They're offensively, they are the best team in the country right now. The way they're playing today, they are the best offensive football team in the country. Uh, and people, somebody's saying like, you know, you can look at statistics in Georgia or Ohio State. I, I don't really care what statistics you want to throw out there. Ohio State or or Georgia, neither one of them are moving the ball with anywhere near the same consistency. Tennessee can run the ball very successfully. They can throw the ball very successfully. And they're doing it against pretty darn good defenses and at times making it look kind of easy. They are... They remind me a lot of 2012 Texas A&M, maybe 2019 LSU. Like there, there aren't that many teams that move the ball that easy as an offense. They're not built the same way 19 LSU is, which is why I say the A&M team uh, a little more quarterback driven, a little more explosive, razzle dazzle. Uh, 2019 LSU could just sort of work the field and just you know beat you at every every position to whatever whatever they wanted to do just due to their star talent. Uh, and quarterback play. And I'm not sure LSU is quite the same machine, but or Tennessee is, but that, that, that LSU team was, but they're, they're still good enough to be my number two. My number three is Georgia. Um, I, I, I mean, they're still a very good football team. And Georgia's, I think, handled Florida pretty well. Uh, now that was a one-score game in the fourth quarter before they kind of stepped on Florida and put them away. But I think that shows the problem with Georgia. They're offensively, it, when you really challenge them, you can really kind of see that offense start to creak. And they've got the best tight end room in the country. But I, as I've always maintained, you can't consistently maintain high scoring through a tight end room. Uh, I mean, they make phenomenal plays, but you just you they don't turn into eighty yard touchdowns play after play. Uh, and and they do a couple times. You know that Bowers catch was great. Um, and you know, catch and run, but it kind of depends on the DB falling down, right? I mean, you can't can't do that on a consistent enough basis to put up the kind of game like Harrison just did against Penn State, and that's kind of the limiter for Georgia. I think defensively they're very good. 
Um, but it was really obvious when Anthony Richardson hurt his leg in this game uh, today, it broke, it just broke Florida offensively. He's not a good passer. And if he can't run, um, you know, then you get the numbers advantage. And when they started running him in the second half and they got the numbers from that, all of a sudden Florida looked like the run team that they went into the, went into this game as statistically, and they did move the ball on Georgia quite a bit. Um, so that, Again, I, it kind of gave me a little bit of pause. I think Georgia is a very, very good team. I don't think they're as good a team as they were last year. Um, I'm not sure if that's good enough to win a title or not, but that's kind of where they are. Uh, my number four team is Michigan. I think Michigan um, didn't really impress me that much against Michigan State. That was a slow burn against a not very good team. I, I've seen them be too inconsistent on offense too many times now. When they get explosives in the run game, they can be great. But that is also something that can be taken away from you. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think defensively they're they're a very good defense. I'm not sure um, that they're as good as they were last year in certain ways. I think they're more consistent and complete, uh, but they're not as splashy. And they're just, yeah, I, I think there's a limit in what they are offensively and defensively. Uh, and if they face a truly elite unit that's clicking on either side of the ball, I think they probably would get exposed a little bit. Um, and you know, when you're talking top four, top five rankings, we're in that kind of a discussion. They're going to beat most teams are going to beat them most pretty badly, but Georgia, Tennessee, Ohio state, Alabama are different animals. And that's leads into my number five, which is still Alabama. Um, Alabama with that loss has to be lower, um, out of the top four. I'll be honest. If they were to play right now, I don't know that I would pick Michigan to beat Alabama and I, I don't know where Alabama is going to be. They've been really weird because Bryce Young's been hurt for a few weeks uh, and that really affected them offensively. And then defensively, they started really great and um, almost elite got exposed by Tennessee. But this is a big point that I don't, that really hits me in mind for two teams, one Alabama, one you discussed Daniel and that's LSU getting exposed by Tennessee may not be that bad of an indictment. It may be that Tennessee is in that elite offense tier that we talk about all the time where those teams are just going to score 40 plus every game. They might be the one team that's really doing that. And if that's the case, now I do think Alabama had a lot of issues in that game, but I think they kind of got shell shocked and that might not be the indictment we think it is. And otherwise I haven't seen them put together a good game offensively and defensively, but they've looked as good as anyone offensively and they've looked as good as anyone defensively at different points. If they put it together, I still am on the page with Josh Pate to say their potential is to be probably to be the best team in the country because their defensive potential is higher than even Ohio State's, for example. Uh, and their offense isn't as loaded as Ohio State, but I think their defense has the potential to be that much better than Ohio State's where they can play on that same tier. But they haven't put it together, and so they have to stay down there, uh, down there at number five. My number six is Clemson, and this is where we start sort of getting into you know default rankings. I am not that high on Clemson. I, I completely agree with Daniel that I am really concerned that they are a mirage due to their schedule. I was never very high on Wake Forest. I've watched them some this year. I don't think they're a great football team. I think their defense is poor. NC State, I think, is a way worse football team than people thought they were going to be going into the year. I don't know why, but they just, they're just they just not as good, particularly defensively, I think. Clemson, I think, is a beneficiary of their schedule. Um, but they still have a ton of talent. They're running the ball better. They're still good defensively. And at this point, the pickings start getting a little worse. TCU is my next one up. Uh, they're number seven. 
I don't love TCU's defense, and they managed to put away West Virginia, but that was a that's a bad West Virginia team, and they didn't look that much better for a lot of that football game. I don't think TCU is going to keep their record. I think they're going to lose one or more games through the remainder of the year. I don't, I frankly, think they're probably going to end up in my top 10, uh, but they're there right now, and I've said this before. I'm not very high on the Big 12 this year. I was not high on Oklahoma State. I kept not wanting to put them in my top 10. Uh, and eventually, you know, this week they kind of showed why maybe they shouldn't have been in my top 10 as they took a loss. Um, next up for me, number eight is Oregon. Um, they've been playing great football. Again, the Big 12 and the Pac-12, I'm, I'm sketchy on. People, it's easy to rag on the ACC. We forget how isolated every conference is. And my eyes just tell me the Pac-12 is not playing good football. That's just my impression. There aren't a lot of statistics to be, to really match it up. Uh, but it, it's really the same things Daniel said. When you start to break down what a lot of the other teams in the in uh, you know in the Pac-12 did, the fact that USC lost to Utah and Utah lost to Florida, and Florida's a bad football team by SEC standards, makes it hard for me to put really want to put USC in there. I mean, the, the fact that USC didn't look great week after week against teams that I think are really kind of a second tier for what would be in the Big Ten or SEC alarms me but I can't put them any lower given their record. Um, and my number 10 is LSU. Um, so you're not so crazy, Daniel, or at least not in my mind. When you get past eight, there are not any really good picks here. Um, and here's the thing with LSU. They've got two losses. One was a blowout to Tennessee. That was a game where their starting left tackle and left guard were lost that morning. The left tackle got ill, and then the left guard... Uh, ends up getting hurt in the first quarter and the left side of their offensive line collapsed. And then they got blown out by Tennessee uh, in part because their offense just, when you lose the whole left side of the offensive line and you're just giving up pressure play after play, your offense goes in the tank. And that's what that game was. Uh, the problem with me with LSU right now, they are a top, I think they're a top 15 quality team. That Florida state loss is bad. And we always talk about it's how you did with your schedule versus somebody else, how somebody else would do with your schedule and my problem with LSU is they're a higher quality team, maybe, than they are a ranking team. Uh, because, you know, I you've got to ding them for that FSU loss. And, and so, yeah, I kind of got them in 10, but I also understand why, you know, the AP may not want to rank them higher. The problem, though, when you start looking at the rest of the rankings, right, um, who else do you want to put in there? Like Ole Miss is one to consider uh, with their one loss. But remember, LSU blew out Ole Miss, right? So that's why I have really LSU in the spot they're in. I don't think it can be Utah, given the discussion we just had. I don't think it can be NC State. I don't really buy Illinois. I know they, you know, they had a they won by a good margin today, but against an awful Nebraska team, I think Illinois is just a product of their schedule. Um, same deal with UCLA. I think UCLA is a product of their schedule. It's tough. I think the mash, they've been saying all year, the gap between like eight and 30 is really slim. I think it's 100% true. I think all these teams in that group, a lot of them are going to take more losses. I think anybody really out of the top six is probably, it may well be that no one finishes. There may be something like five teams in the country that finish with um, finish with less than two losses. Maybe, maybe only, uh, could be even three or four. Um, and I, I do think this is one of those years where we're probably going to have top three lost teams in the top 10. 
um, just because it seems like this middle tier is destined to beat itself up because it's so competitive uh, in those conferences. Um, but yeah, that, that's my top 10. And if you think it's easy, good luck trying to do it. Cause I think after eight, man, it's just, it's a mess. If you want to rank based on quality, if you want to rank based on resume, you're going to swap it up a ton because the difference between number nine and number 20 isn't that high. And depending on how you want to do your rankings, you're going to end up with a pretty different list each time. Yeah. And, and some people are going to say, um, put Ole Miss in there. they got a pretty clean record, but they lost like last week um, to a team that we've got in the top 10. Um, they also played a true freshman quarterback tonight and, and could have lost that game. Um, against an AM and M team that like look, AM played Alabama close, AM has a lot of talent. Um, but AM played Alabama's backup quarterback close and still lost, even though they turned the ball over like five times. I don't think AM's a great football team. I did I did what I saw from the freshman tonight, and I wonder, Josh, you know, we're talking about we're talking about Penn State earlier. Um, and not making a decision to go to Drew Aller. Is there a little bit of indictment on Jimbo for not going to what I thought, decisive quarterback, spun the ball very well, made really good reads. The offense looked functional, and yes, it's against Ole Miss, but like, are you telling me that App State, who give up 63 to North Carolina, is a much better defense than Ole Miss. Like I thought that Wegman looked a lot better than anything else they've had. Is that kind of an, an indictment on Jimbo too for not playing him sooner? I think I think it has to be at some level, right? One of the main responsibilities of a coach is to figure out what your best personnel is to put on the field to form a team. Coaches don't play football. Coaches coach football and coaches assemble a roster. And if you can't identify what your best roster is, then I think you have a problem. Now, I will say I'm always really hesitant when you talk freshman quarterbacks, because, again, you don't like it may be that four weeks ago that Connor Wegman wasn't really capable of starting a football game. And it may be that they know they can only get so many games out of him before they're going to show the entire Connor Wegman playbook. And we, we see this a lot like last year with Caleb Williams. We bring this example up all the time. He looked great for like two games. And then people saw, okay, this is what he is, and these are the plays he runs. And he sucked for the rest of the year. And it wasn't because he was a bad quarterback. It's because he didn't know enough of the offense to be able to do a whole lot more, and you can shut a guy down in that situation. So I'm a little forgiving with the true freshman situation. Um, but I will say, and I've said it, you know, the beginning of the year, I took heat for this, right? But my amateur eye looked at Haynes King and said, there's no way this guy's going to be a good quarterback. And they started him. And I don't know, you know, if I, I don't know what AM thought they were ever going to get out of the offense starting Haynes King. Um, and eventually they made the switch to Max Johnson, right? And maybe this is maybe the more of an indictment. And Max Johnson looked a lot better than King did. And he wasn't good, but they were functional offensively with Johnson. And it was only because he got hurt that they had to go back to King. And he was terrible again. So now they went back to Wegman. And again, he's not great, but he's functional. So, yeah, I mean, it's not just one guy, it's two. Like, they made the point to start Hangs King. Like, Fisher forced that. 
And at no point has he been good. And I don't know, I don't know who saw anything or what they saw to make them think that this was a sensible move, but it did not work. Um, and I, I've always felt like it's not a good sign for a coaching staff when they improve due to some injury forcing you to play a guy you didn't want to play that ends up being a lot better, or you decide you discover a guy is better midway through the year. I mean, that's an indictment on your ability to evaluate your own team. And I'm going to wrap in sort of segueing in Mike Farino's super chat where he says, I know this is late, but is Notre Dame the most bipolar team in the U S seem to play great versus good teams and horrendous to really bad ones. Uh, I mean, Notre Dame's a team, right. That has had to switch quarterbacks off and on. And they found some success by sort of inadvertently switching to a quarterback that ended up being a lot more successful to them. I think that's an indictment on the coaching staff. Now we already said, we think we don't think Syracuse is actually a good team, uh, which I think is a lot of it. But I think that's a piece, right? And I'll, I will give a couple more that are um, maybe interesting ones people haven't thought about. Tennessee looks awesome this year. That offensive scheme is working really well. Do we want to have a conversation about the fact that Heupel didn't start Hendon Hooker last year? That he started Joe Milton? <laughs> yeah, we all kind was, of forget that, that it took wild. a long time for him to, to realize that he needed to start Hooker. I I got to be honest. There's a big piece of me that thinks, I think Heupel has a really good scheme. I do. I think they may have lucked into that roster a little bit. I mean, Brew McCoy is a transfer. They've got transfer a lot of transfers on the offensive side. They took Hooker, and they didn't even expect him to start. Yeah, they're they, real they senior, started, too. They started a different – yeah, they started a different transfer over him. Um. So uh, while I give them credit for building what they have and having the scheme, I, I think you got to be, you got to take a step back and realize they didn't know what they were building uh, at Tennessee last year. And they lost some games they should not have lost. Like I think Pitt, they lost to right last year that if they had started hooker, they would have won. Um, and they got a great team now, but it, it's interesting around football around the sport of college football, the transfers are available. We talked about Penn state, right? Penn state probably should have realized two years ago that they needed a better solution at the quarterback position and they didn't manage it. Um, they let Will Levis go. And I don't know if Will Levis is the greatest QB ever, but he certainly looks like he probably has a higher ceiling than Clifford. And somehow they never got that out of him. Um, so that does seem to be a bit of a bit of an epidemic in football, not understanding who your starting quarterback is not making the correct evaluation. I don't know if it's loyalty development or what, uh, but I think you can say a lot of things, um, a lot of things about that. And I know Mike, Mike Farino give one more, trying to make sure to stay on top of super chats. But he said Hooker has said in interviews he really struggled early with the playbook, and I'm sure that's, um, I'm sure that's true. Uh, but at the same time, Milton was God, Milton was terrible. If you watch, yeah, he was. Tennessee, I mean, played. he was bad at Michigan too. I mean, he was so bad. And then Connor Kendall Hurley said Connor Wegman and Drew Aller at Penn State should have started last week, if you ask me um fisher and franklin are overrated and that's yeah i mean we you can have this conversation all around who should be the starting quarterbacks right um and i think a lot of it frankly is justified yeah horatio says tennessee won't be anywhere near this good next season now i think that hypo's system is good enough to generate points enough that they'll be relevant and this is what i've always said and this is where auburn screwed up a lot of these schools screwed up when you are at a huge talent disadvantage you have to hire a guy who has an elite system that can neutralize that gap because Tennessee is not as talented as the team. Like they're not more talented than Alabama. They 
they it allows you to kind of take two skip two steps ahead from where you would be as a program and then because you've gotten wins maybe a little artificially because you've brought a system to the table that's kind of schemed your way into some wins then you build some recruiting momentum tennessee's going to build recruiting momentum out of this you can't just get an all-arounder anymore to come in and dig a team out of a hole that plays good competition you can get an all-arounder to win in alabama to win at ohio state you've got to have someone who has an elite system and that's what usc did like they tried to hire a guy that would bring them a lot of points right not just somebody that's going to preach tough nose football and that's why i think bielema didn't work at arkansas ultimately so i'm a little concerned about sam Pittman at arkansas although i do think he brought in some good offensive chops to to help that side of the ball <clears throat> i think that's where you are with hypo but i will say with tennessee that is a very senior-laden team. That is a that is a team that's going to get absolutely wrecked in the draft and graduations at the end of this year. It'll be interesting to see them rebuild, but they're going to be in a lot better position to get some recruiting wins um, because they've had the year that they've had. Josh, I know we're getting getting towards the end, uh, and, and you're and probably me, getting sleepy. Go ahead. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say Tennessee. You know, 14 of 15 – Leading tacklers in the Tennessee team are draft eligible. Yep. Yeah. So it, I, and I think Hapel's a good coach and I think they're building something. Uh, but to your point, right, they brought in a great system that allowed them to jump a couple steps ahead and really, I think, take advantage of the fact that they had a nice collection of pieces. They leveraged the transfer portal really well. Some of that, like, I think Hooker was actually brought in by Pruitt originally. Um, but they, they leveraged all that and the fact that they had a good position, but they were able to leverage it due to the system. And then the question is, and someone someone did the same thing at Texas A&M, right? The question is, can you do all that and take the next step by turning that into good recruiting and then developing that recruiting and then sustaining it? Um, but, you know, they're they're checking the first box, and I'm not saying they won't check the others. I'm just saying there's a lot of boxes on the sheet. Um, I'll end with this because we always like a little NIL rant. Somebody... Somebody um, and and somebody's asked about the Michigan Michigan State tunnel issue. We don't know that had that started or that came about while, after we went live. Um, so in the comments, I think there was a pretty big. Um, I think it got pretty nasty. Somebody up the comments up the line said something about you, you know, talking about. It, it came out of your conversation or your comments about starting Joe Milton over, over Hooker, but. The pressure, because this is relevant to Tennessee, they've got a high-priced NIL quarterback coming in. And that's another thing that NIL, I think, will do to the college game that big-dollar first round, and especially in the era of visibility and, and everything, in the, NFL, in, the, in the NFL, there's a lot of pressure to start first-round picks. And I think that NIL is going to change the game in a way where you pay a lot of money for these kids to come and play for you. The expectation from the boosters or the businesses that are putting money into these true freshman 18-year-olds is they want to see them on the field. So that means that you are actually in some ways potentially hurting or putting a poorer product on the field because of the pressure to start these guys. And that's something that nobody's talking about with NIL, but at Miami and, and really in the skill position world, 
we're going to see this be a problem, I think, in the next couple of years. Yeah, there's there's a lot of additional pressures that people probably haven't thought through. Things like your big time boosters that may well be on your board of trustees are going to funnel big time money to be, get a player in your team. And they do it for NIL. And as part of that, they have to do some sort of endorsement thing, you know, whether it's fake or not is, is kind of the second secondary question. But let's say they bring in a freshman quarterback and then the board member gives him helps give him money for an NIL deal to go do advertisements for all his car dealerships. You think he's going to be happy if you don't start him? Uh, do you think the player is going to be, you know, really thrilled if he's not playing? Do you think the backup guy that's not doesn't have the car dealership is going to be thrilled when you start the dude that has it? Like the the dynamics from here are really dangerous. And another thing I've heard because the and the NCAA just released a, a new set of guidance actually to the the colleges, which I found pretty interesting last week. And the guidance made really clear that the colleges can't have any any interaction with establishing the NIL deals. They made, um, they felt like it was really becoming a problem, I guess, that the colleges were seemed to have a hand in it. And there are a couple, uh, a couple schools um, that have sort of rebuilt their NIL around the college having more of a hand in organizing it. And they've done stuff about like trying to educate people on how to do NIL. Um, and they also came forward and said, look, you can't be doing any of that. You can give them financial literacy training. Um, you can make sure they have some counseling options, but you can't be telling them how to do NIL. You can't be helping them get in touch with agencies and stuff. That's the way a lot of it's built right now. Um, once that goes away, the problem you're going to have though, is who tells the collectives who you want to be recruiting, right? If you've got a four-star in your state and you go, man, this guy, kid's kind of toxic. And there's this other lower rank kid, you know, I'm a Texas school, right? And we've got this number 40 rank overall quarterback. Well, I really want the number 60 rank guy out of Louisiana because he's a better kid than this kid in Texas. I think he's a better fit for my system. What happens when your board of trustee member sort of lines up a deal where this Texas kid is going to get $4 million to go to Texas and he wants to commit? do you have to take him? And when you take him, are you stuck with him? Do you have to start him? It, it's, there's a lot of, lot of wrinkles here, a lot of complexities. And I think people need to bear in mind, you know, there's a lot of politics at a lot of these colleges and these coaches are serving in the whim of ADs and the ADs are totally at the whim of the boosters. And, you know, we've heard for years that at Texas, they have a problem where the boosters want to meddle and they want to tell people who should be starting or how the team should be run or who they should hire as an assistant. Uh, you think that's a problem now? Imagine how bad it's going to be when those boosters are the ones that are actually playing for the players to be there. Uh, I think it can get to an in entirely higher level. Um, and I think we're, we've only begun to see what this Pandora's box is going to bring. Yeah. And, and I'll kind of end on that. Like there's, we've already seen it. Um, I think a Miami um, in, in a little different way, a Miami basketball player, last year had a good season was threatening to sit out if he didn't get a better nil deal like this is a pandora's box and it's crazy but i don't think anybody's thought about the pressure that it's going to put on coaches to play guys because think about like the the intertwining of boosters here because they're boosters like if you've got a big car dealership in a, in a college town and you've been basically paying a coach's salary or his raises or whatever, because not all that comes from like direct school money. 
you're paying that coach's salary effectively, and now you're paying this the 18 year old kid quarterback's salary as well. You're gonna want to see him on the field because if it is really about getting a return on your investment and not just about paying players, man, you're gonna want to see that guy succeed because you're gonna succeed. Um, and that's I just these are things that nobody has thought about. Um, Josh, we gotta end it. It's it's really late. I'll let you have a parting shot on this thought. Um Georgia came out an 11 point favorite opening line against Tennessee Saturday. Um, give us a parting shot on that and I'll close this up. Surprising. I would not have guessed the line would be that high. Um, that's surprising. I'm going to have to sort of break it down a little bit, but yeah, it, that's going to be one of the tougher games to pick. And I will say this too, and this is an interesting thing to me. We have not seen Georgia play an opposing offense that is as good as Tennessee, maybe under Kirby Smart's entire tenure. Am I wrong on that in the regular season? Um, in the regular season, no. I would say well, maybe Alabama's 20, offense. 2020 Alabama, yeah. And yeah. they got they got kind of torn through, but that was also the year that Georgia wasn't that great in general. So I don't think that really was taken as much, but this is, I think by, I would almost say by far the toughest regular season offensive challenge that Kirby smart has faced with a good team. Um, and it's interesting because the, a lot of the discussion in the next week is going to be centered around things like second half of the Alabama game where they lost the national title or the Alabama game, the SEC championship last year, right? Are, are they going to be able to show up and show out versus a top level, you know, top level offense? You talk Rose Bowl versus Oklahoma. Um, and what Vegas seems to be saying is they think they can, or they think that they have the ability to maybe bully Tennessee or outscore Tennessee probably says a lot about the way people view Kentucky. I don't Kentucky, man, they're, they can play pretty bad football this year. And and a lot of it has to do with Levis's inconsistency and you did get bad Levis. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing to mull on for me. Cause I just, yeah, I heard that live. Um, and I don't think I'm ever going to be comfortable making this pick, but it's a lot for me to mull on going into tomorrow. And y'all that's just a segue to let you know that we're going to be doing that preview this week. So keep an eye out for that one coming Monday morning. Check that one out. Thanks so much, y'all, for coming late night tonight. But we had a lot of people on tonight. It was a great live show. Great in the comments. Avoided some of the usual toxicity we had out there. Thanks so much, y'all, for staying with us this late. Look for our previews this week. Y'all have a great week, and God bless. <laughs>